Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So we're studying uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We've gotten through the Beatitudes, where people who... Uh, are in very difficult circumstances, underdogs, spiritually and socially, materially, have been invited into a relationship with God and promised ultimate fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment of their uh, deepest longings. And for those who accept it, Jesus proceeds to unpack in these three chapters what that would mean for them, what their life will look like. And he begins by saying, you who feel like your life, you know, will never be noticed by the world, Uh, that you would never really make an impact or difference because of where you are or because of what you have or don't have or because of what you do or don't do or who you know and who you don't know. Jesus says, to that group, essentially, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. You're, in these two metaphors, Jesus is essentially saying, you're about to become as necessary and as longed for as salt and light. You're going to add value every day. In fact, night and day. Wherever you are and whomever you're around, with me in your life, you will slow the effects of sin and show the way to God. So Jesus is essentially telling this group by calling them salt and life, He says, first, your everyday life will look completely different. And then, obviously, your presence anywhere and everywhere will make a difference. You will be different, and you will make a difference. Now, last week I sort of mentioned that the persecution piece, which came a little before this, You'll be offensive and attractive, Jesus says. Uh, It's a strange place to start the sermon to this group of people. And I guess I've been asking sort of since then, for the last couple weeks, why start there? What's underneath this? Why start with their impact on others before he describes the difference that's actually going to happen in their life? And this is what has occurred to me, based on having already studied a little bit ahead. It's the simplest and most basic way to measure the overall quality of the life that Jesus is offering. For you, for yourself, and for the world. We used to have a prof in school who... Uh, 
used to be famous for saying, uh, you know, do you have the real disease when it comes to spiritual life, Christianity? Uh, In other words, look at the impact you're having and you'll know if you got it. What kind of impact are you having in your everyday world for Christ? And you'll know whether it's really made a difference in you. And so, it's almost as if Jesus is essentially challenging us. Are you having one? So you get this sort of two-way affirmation. You know because you're different. But the world also knows because they're drawn to it and they're drawn to God because of your life. So we're getting, uh, I'm going to say something, we're just getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in this because the next paragraph, which is an interesting and one of, the, one of the tougher ones in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's essentially Jesus laying the groundwork philosophically speaking, for the foundation of the entire life that he is offering. The life I'm offering is not a call to moralism and legalism. That's not what this sermon's about. It doesn't produce self-righteousness. That's why Jesus can say pretty quickly in this thing, we don't judge people. What I'm handing you is not something that you're going to use as a tool to manipulate people with. That's what religion would do. This is the end of religion, what I'm offering you. You won't look at people that way. When you get the life I'm offering you and you start living it, That's at least one reason why it's easy for Christ followers to actually move into the world instead of move out of it. Religion moves you out of it. You're too good for it. You're self-righteous. You're better than. To be salt and light is just the opposite. You move in because you're amazed by what you have. You're like, wow, this is available for everyone. See, because what happened to these folks who are sitting on the hillside? Religion did it to them. They feel on the outs. Because there's a standard that people have created that they don't match up to. And because of it, they've been pushed out. If you don't conform, you lose out. So Jesus is saying, to follow me is to experience a personal and dynamic God life that by its very nature can and will move forward and toward in the, in the world, around the world, quite comfortably and strategically. People who have the life that I've called them to move quite comfortably and strategically around the world. 
They're less put off than the religious. Not more put off. So when Jesus calls you, he does something in you that draws you to people outside the kingdom. And yet at the same time, when you enter into that world, you're not like them either. You're not individualistic or relativistic. So you're not like them, but you're not like the religious either. That makes you like salt and light spiritually. And very often, people like that are surprising. They're like refreshing. And so anything in you, this is right at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus is going to say, if there is anything, here's a great way to assess your, your, like your spiritual life. If there's anything in you that keeps you or prevents you from engaging the world, that will prove you probably are not what you think you are. And you probably don't have what you think you have. And Jesus is going to say in this little paragraph that we're going to look at, you would be trying to do the impossible and you would be being absurd. If somehow you believed you had my life but were not salt and light wherever you are, you would be essentially trying the impossible and being absurd. Those two things. Jesus just comes right out and says it. You remember, uh, a, there's a text in Isaiah 58. This is the second half of Isaiah. And Israel was supposed to be a light to the world. But what happened was they started getting a little religious, overly religious, taking some of the things that they thought God really was concerned about, and it, and it made them very inward. And so uh, there is this text in Isaiah 58, verses like really 3 to 10, where God literally says, do you think these religious activities that you're doing, that you're going to hear my voice on high because I'm so impressed with this religious life you've started living? And he literally says in here, do you, think that's the, do you think that's what I would choose for you? Because you, you bow your head. You spread sackcloth. You can just picture them just alone and spreading sackcloth and hoping they impress God. And then pouring ashes down and laying in it. Is this what you think that I want, God says? And then he goes, this isn't, this isn't the religious thing that I would choose. Let me tell you the one that I would choose, God says. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Let's look at it. It's worth reading. Is not this the fast that I choose for you? They were so proud of themselves for fasting. To lose, 
Here's the, here's the fast I would choose for you. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide? Great word. Yourself from your own flesh. All right. What's going on? Is anything working? Here we go. Then... Shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall appear in your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger. This is what religious people do, isn't it? They just do this to the world. This is how you know you don't really have it. And they speak wickedness. And here's the line. If you pour yourself out, that's basically make yourself vulnerable. For the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. That's an incredible text. That's essentially what Jesus is trying to say. I'm going to set right at the outset. If you, ha- if you have a kind of life with me that does not invade the world in a salt-like and light-like manner, something's wrong. And so there's a sense in which if you are salt and light, you validate yourself and the world validates you because they see it. And it impacts them. It's double validation that you got the real disease. So let's look at light today. We looked at salt last week. You're the light of the world. Let's start there. Salt is obviously a little more secret and a little more subtle. Okay? Fights decay, seasons, but you don't see it. Uh, and, and it operates sort of slowly, permeates slowly. Light, on the other hand, is really hard to miss against darkness. And its presence is felt instantly. The distinction between light and darkness are just far more profound And so it's a much more prominent theme in scriptures, Old Testament and New, as you can see. Isaiah used the light image. New Testament uses it everywhere. And that's why Jesus will spend three verses on light versus one on salt. As we'll see, he elaborates on this image a little bit further. And within the light image, he'll use two visuals that picture how he intends for the light to work to help us understand what that means. Like, what's my life really going to be like? If it is salt and light, what would my life look like? And so there are two images. One is a city, and the other one 
is a house, city and a house. And so we'll sort of start with the city. But the city is big. Your light will have some big impact. It will also have some, in small ways, it will make an impact. Uh, it will be a distant, some of your impact will be from a distance. You might not even know the impact you're having. But some of it will be very up close, and you'll know immediately that you're having impact. That's the city and the house. They do both. And so let's start with the city. You're like a city on a hill. Cities were built on the highest ground possible both for protection and visibility. You wanted to be seen, and you wanted to be protected. Very often they were built out of white limestone, so the sun would hit them during the day and they'd gleam. And then at night, obviously, if you lit a lamp in the, in the small windows in all the homes and uh, you know stores of the city, buildings, you'd... You'd, that light would sort of come out those windows and, and it would form a glow because of that white limestone. And the whole area would just sort of glow. And so to a weary traveler, this would be an incredibly welcoming and relieving sight. It would represent hope. It would represent arrival. Life it would represent. against especially the dangers of the night. Now, let's figure out what that looks like in your life. What does it mean to be a city? If you're a city light in your life, what would that look like? Well, first thing you have to do is say the same thing about cities. Wherever you are, God has strategically placed you there to be a light. You, first of all, have to believe that. We said this last week, and it's really important. Even if you don't want to be where you are, you're still a light. And that means geographically, wherever that takes you, wherever you physically are, neighborhood, school, job, you have in those places a reputation. Hopefully, for being caring, solid, person of integrity, different, but not weird. You know what I mean? There's so many weird Christians that when you meet one that isn't, it's like, oh. And at some point, you never know when, you never know when, some weary traveler might need refuge from you because of that life you've been living. You know, a good deal of our lives, probably right now we could all, if we were sitting around having this conversation together discussing this, you'd probably say, yeah, I've spent a lot of my life being a light from a distance, you know, and now my life is a light, you know. Hopefully there's a glow. 
in the places I used to be, um, in the minds of people. There's not a whole lot more I can do. I used to be at that job. Hopefully, I left a glow. Uh, or, I, you know, I'm not at that place anymore, but hopefully I've left a glow, you know. Um, and one day you hope that people will circle back. They'll remember when God grabs a hold of their heart, even though you're not there anymore. They'll reflect on the fact that I used to know a guy and I used to know a gal. And now I get it. I didn't get it then. I saw the glow. I saw the light from a distance. I could see there was something unique. It was attractive to some degree, but it wasn't time for me to enter. I have people like this in my life right now. They're still in my mind. Some of them I, I see less. I don't see them the same amount for whatever circumstances. Some of them I don't see at all, but they're in my mind, and they're not that far away. But they're on my mind, and I hope I'm on theirs. Right now, I have people in my life that uh, I have shared Christ with. I've even invited them here, and they've come. Or I've helped them in some other way. But none of them are ready to enter the city yet. They're not ready to settle down in the city yet. And all I can do is hope that I left the glow, that one of these days it'll, it'll go, ah. Oh. And it's one of life's greatest moments. If you've ever had anybody circle back into your life, calls you and says, you know, you'll never believe what happened to me. But, but I remember distinctly what you said to me, I remember distinctly how you lived, I remember distinctly something about you and I wanted to let you know. This is, I have been fortunate to have that happen to me sometimes in my life. That is the, the distant city. So in a sense, you yourself are the city, but there's another sense about this city that ought to be pointed out. Because it's really hard to be a city alone. It's kind of a big group image, you know. It's a population, really. And so I think there's a corporate application here. Um, we create, we, we cast a light in this community together. What we do together, our presence, our participation in things. Here, when we're together, like right now, and when we're out in the community doing things. At least every seven days, we announce to the community, we are here, and we are ready. It's like a Motel 6. <laughs> Your life is like a Motel 6. Light's always on. You can pop in anytime you want. And sometimes they'll pass you by, turn around, have to make a U-turn, come back. But that's what we do together when we're together, at least every seven days. We say, we've turned the lights on. The whole community knows. They saw you drive in. 
we're here. We're ready for you. By our arrival, by our serving and with hopeful expectation, I'm here pretty early in the morning, usually one of the first ones with the tech team. And I sit in my office and out the windows, I can see when the orange shirt parking lot guys get here and they get here before you, you know, preparing, just turning on lights in case somebody decides to drop by. Whether they drop by by, you know, some weary traveler by invitation or by desperation or by accident. We've had people pull into the parking lot on a Sunday morning and say, let's just stay. And they stay. And they come in and then, then they stay here. Some of them give their life to Christ because they just popped in, didn't expect to, or making a U-turn in the parking lot. So what we do together, why we're here, when you, when you drive here every Sunday morning, you ought to be thinking to yourself, I'm going to help turn this light on. I'm going to help this place glow. So if somebody walks in the door, they'll feel loved. Everywhere you serve, everywhere you give, everywhere you connect with people, anywhere you're present, there should be a glow. So that's the city light. Then there is the, uh, we're going to look real quickly at the, uh, the house light. People don't light a lamp, put it under a basket, but under a lampstand or on a lampstand. And it gives light to everyone in the house, gives light to everyone in the house. Now we've gone from the city, it's as if you, you're like watching a movie and it's panned out and then it just, it just gets a close-up of somebody in a house somewhere. Now Jesus is going to take the light and he's going to bring it. He's going to bring it home, literally, a little bit. Houses in the city, these cities, were small. You could light a single lamp and probably see all four corners of the house to some degree. Um, and so that little lamp, was, was more of a simple kind of a light. It was a useful light, a practical kind of light. It made you be able to actually move around the house, but it also made it possible to do normal tasks that had to be done in the house in the evening. And so these sort of describe your everyday life. This is really up close to you who you interact with, your intimate connections, interactions, your duties, how you carry yourself daily. Uh, this is not an afterglow or a distant glow. This is the up-close handling of yourself around other people. What does that look like? The way you do your job, your response carry out your responsibilities, how you treat others, how you talk. Are you compassionate? Are you caring? Do you do your job well? Do you complain? Do you love, do you love to point out error when you see it? How do you talk about the people at your job that aren't present?
I say this a lot to you. It's not that hard to stand out anywhere. It's not that hard. Just your language, how you talk about the opposite sex, how you channel, you know, your anger, hatred, meanness, your opinions. How do you, how do your opinions get offered when it's time for you to speak? That's what it means to be in the house. Like you just lit up somewhere where I can step. You made Christianity really practical and visible. It could also mean, though, I think another thing is God could say to you, okay, there's, there's, this is your house, this is your job, this is your office, this is your road where you travel, this is your car, this is your school, this is your locker room, whatever it is. Okay, that's your house. But it's possible that God could say to you, you know what? I'm going to put this something on your heart because I need a lamp lit somewhere. And I want to ask you to do it, even though it's not one of your normal spots. This is when you might say to yourself, you know, I've become a city to a lot of people in my life. They've already seen the light. I've already said what I can say. As long as I don't, as long as I stay faithful... The light has been shown. There's not a whole lot more. I'll just keep being that light, but maybe God wants to put me in another setting now. Maybe God wants me to initiate being in another setting. I'm not used to. Maybe I wouldn't normally do it, but I'm going to do it just to be somewhere else because I need a fresh location. So you might say, I need a light lit there, and he puts it on your heart to go to that place or that event. You find yourself somewhere you wouldn't normally go. Um, maybe he says, I want you to join that. You're like, I don't want to join that. God help me, I don't want to join that and be around them. Do what they have to do. Maybe you say, I'm going to start working out. Not because I want to work out, because I hate that. I just want to be around people who work out. And be a light. Look at that. Okay, Lord, I'll join the gym. I'll join it to be a light for you. Don't hang out in the cafe. Get up there and work out while you're up there being a light. I'll tell you, I was at a gym, local gym here. This was not very long ago, right before COVID hit and everybody had to leave. I have this, uh, I, I have this uh, one, one of the things I love to do is meet some of the guys in there that are really good at what they do, and you can tell that working out is more important to them than, than the average Joe. And they're fun to watch, see how they, how they do things, the different things they've, that they do. I love it, and I love approaching them. And they love being approached to say, hey, I see what you're doing over there. I'd like them, you know, and I get to know them. That's how I do it. And, uh, and one of these guys I've gotten to know, one of them was, uh, there's another one, there's like a group of them, and one of them is... Uh, he doesn't give the air that he wants anyone to talk to him. You know, the, that guy. And so I'm, I'm staying away from that guy. Okay, I, I'm watching that guy. I got my eye on that guy, but I'm not going up to him. And so uh, one of the guys that I developed a relationship with was a you know, bigger guy, much bigger than me. And 
nice fella, and we start, we'd chat, and then, and then he would say hi to me, you know, one of the little guys in the gym. He'd say, hey. And I'd be like, yay. You know how that is. You know how that feels when Beast over here says hi to you. You're like, thank you so much. Well, uh, one day, the mean guy, the meanie, went off on the guy that I had gotten to know a little bit. Two big guys, and I thought they were going to fight. Right there, we were all working out in the same section. The other guy just was in a bad mood because I watched the whole thing. And he went off verbally loud. The whole gym could hear it. And I'm standing watching this thing. And I'm going, I don't want to break that up. I don't want to break that up. So he's staying calm. The guy that I've talked to before, he's staying pretty calm. The other guy is like going off. And if these two go at it, it's going to be nasty. And so finally that guy just says his piece, just keeps going and going and John and John and finally walks away. And if you're the guy that's standing there, the big guy, who's everybody's now watched you do nothing, how do you feel? You feel like, I don't know, should I run up on this guy and let's just do this? Because this feels horrible to be standing here right now. And that was my moment. I just, I went right up to him because I knew exactly how he was feeling. I know exactly. I said, hey, you guys, hey. And God gave me words to calm him down. Say, hey, I, I said, I saw that. And I want you to know. You probably could have done something. I was incredibly impressed that you reserved that power. And I just want you to know I appreciate it. And you could see literally relief come to his face because it was just one of those moments. Everybody was tense. And when it was over, we'd never had any lengthy conversation, just a very brief. The end of the day, when we were both done and we were both leaving, he came up to me. And he said, you know, I really appreciate what you said to me. Because I didn't know what I was going to do. But now I'm glad how it turned out. Up close, right here, in the gym, where you're at, be light. In the house. God needs these lamps. This is how you hold back darkness. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's only one other spot where light's mentioned. A lamp. It's in chapter 6 when it's talking about treasure and anxiety. And he says in there that your eye is like a lamp. And if your eye is healthy, in other words, if it's, if it's generous, and the, really the idea is if your eye has been changed by me, you don't see things the same, and there's a light inside of you. And that light will come out, and people will see by the way you handle your treasures, 
by what you value, that there's a light in you. That's the everyday light. But he says, Jesus says in that text, if your light goes out, how dark is that? Literally says, how great is that darkness? If the light goes out in you, it's darker than it already is. So that's why you've got to let that light shine. Before people. This is a great text. This is a great word right here. Before men. Before people. It's got to be there. That's where it has to be. So that they can see it. You know, your good deeds, whatever they are, and they can give honor to your father. I mean, this is the only way to connect them to me. Jesus is like, I want people to be introduced to me. I'm happy to let you be the guy or the gal who does it. And so you got to be before men. There's no, there's no kind of light that God's, there's no kind of difference he's made in your life. The light that's inside of you that doesn't want to go here. What kind of a, what, what is it he's done in you if it's, if it's not something that drives you into and toward the world, not away from it, he'll say. Now, let's sort of put a bow on this whole thing. And let me give you what you probably wonder why I didn't mention in both these texts is... Uh, Reflecting on Jesus' comments about what happens if you're not that city and if you're not the lamp in that house. Because he brings that up. And I think there's an impossibility and an absurdity. All right? Uh, a city on a hill can't be hidden. And it's really, at the end of the day, it's impossible to hide the city. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dallas Willard has a book called The Allure of Gentleness. Uh, it's been a while since I've read that. But I'll appeal to it every now and then. He's got this one statement. He brings up salt and light in one spot. But when it comes to the city, he literally says this. Have you ever thought about trying to hide a city? Can you imagine being assigned the job of hiding San Francisco? Can you imagine? He literally brings that up. And I remember laughing. I remember it connecting in my head. And I've never forgotten it. Yeah, try to hide San Francisco. Not happening. It's an impossibility. Is what Jesus is saying. Can't do it. Can't hide the city. kind of life that I've given you wants to be out. It wants to glow. 
wants to be seen. It has to be seen. And then the second one is an absurdity. One's an impossibility. The other one is an absurdity. No one lights a lamp, puts it under a basket. You put it on a lampstand so you can see everything. It would be absurd. Those lamps took a lot of care. It wasn't just a switch. Uh, You had to fill it. You had to trim it. You had to light it. You had to put it on a stand for maximum effect in the house so you could see everything. To cover it with a peck measure or a measuring bowl, it would just be a bowl you measure things with, and you come over to the lamp and you cover that thing with it. Jesus is saying, that would be insane. It would be absurd to go through all that trouble to get that thing lit, knowing what it's for, and then cover it. Makes no sense. One's an impossibility, one's an absurdity. That your light, that your life wouldn't be light. Impossible if you have the life I've given you. Absurd if you're trying to hide it. So if you're attempting the impossible or the absurd, you're actually seeking darkness. You're removing yourself from the light. And if Matthew 6 is correct, it's a worse kind of darkness. You made things even darker than they already were when you hide your light in life because it makes you blind. It means Jesus' life is not having the right effect on you. That's one thing. It means that some of you, some of us, are claiming Christ, but we are not living in a way anyone would see it. That would be problematic. The second thing is, or you've become religious and have chosen to hide it. You prefer to live your Christian life in private. You become what Von Rod said, Jonah. He turned into a religious monster. Better than others. Rosaria Butterfield said, strong words and weak relationships with people out in the world is violent. It's violent. Shutting the lights so people can't see, move, do tasks, get afraid and terrorized. To shut the light is violent, she says. I've never forgotten that. It's a hostile act. It is not characteristic of the life that God wants to impart to us. So, um, remember years, it's been about a little over three years now. I revisited this because now whenever I think of light, uh, I, um, 
I think of this illustration, and I read it to you, but I, I, I went back and read it, and I thought, well, I'll read it to you again, just part of it. It was when I read uh, The Indianapolis. Uh, the USS Indianapolis delivered the atomic bomb to the Tinian Islands in South Pacific. This is the end of July 1945. War's about to be over. Uh, and on their return, they get torpedoed twice by Japanese subs. It explodes and it sinks. 1,200 men were on the ship. 300 were killed in the explosion. 900 end up in the shark-infested waters for almost six days. That's the scene that's talked about in Jaws. Because thousands of sharks were on it. When the, when the, sink exp- or the ship exploded, they were all covered in oil. Folks said, you didn't know who you were talking to. Everyone was literally covered in oil. Many people were burnt. 300 were killed immediately in that. They got separated from each other. Ended up being literally 70 miles away from where the ship sank. All in different places. High swells kept them from seeing each other anyway. But the men became delirious. They started to kill themselves and they started to kill each other because obviously it's impossible to try to comprehend what that would have been like. Of the 900 that made it, that survived the explosion, only 316 made it home. A plane one afternoon. 4.30 in the afternoon on day, roughly day six, flew by and happened to see one group of about 50 guys together. Called it in. A few other planes started to come around and fly around. One of them, a Dumbo, landed in the water knowing it would never take off again just so that those guys had a place to be. Only one ship could get there in any time, really, hope, you know, the fastest anyway, the USS Doyle. It wouldn't get there till midnight. So these guys would have to be in the water another long night. And this, this is the description of the USS Doyle on their way to those guys in the water. The authors write this, boilers churning hot. USS Doyle sliced through the sea with the urgency of a bullet. Over the radio, Clater had heard that Marks collected more than 50 men in that plane that crashed. This meant that there, were, there had to be hundreds of men elsewhere in the black in the water, still in the water, in the blackest of nights. Clater imagined their terror. How many would be lost to colder sharks in this last six hours? And how many would give up hope? At 10.42, Clater issued an order that no man aboard ever heard before. Turn on the searchlight and point it at the sky. 
Claytor's officers and sailors were stunned. At night, the crew of a warship made a religion of keeping it dark. Skulking around under dim red lights, even hiding the orange glimmer of their cigarettes. Some on the bridge were aware of Mark's warning about possible submarines in the area. Allowing any light to escape the ship was like painting her with a bullseye for the enemy. Still, they understood. Doyle, this ship, was more important than an hour it was more, you know, about an hour away from these survivors, and he wanted the men in the water to see the light, dig deep, and hang on just a little bit longer. A sailor complied with the skipper's order, and the ship's 24-inch searchlight streamed skyward, piercing the night with a perfect tower of brilliant white. Standing topside, Doyle gazed up at this unprecedented beacon and hair stood up on the back of his neck like the rest of the crew, he trusted the captain. He also knew that for the first time in his Navy service, his ship had become the brightest target in the Pacific. But when that light hit the southern horizon, he said he'd never seen a better example of American courage. Later, the men would say, who were rescued about that light. Joy and relief washed across our faces as they settled back against in there and gazed upon this, they called a lovely light, now certain of their salvation. It's a religious experience. They saw this, others said, this luminous tower. He realized for the first time he was going to make it. One of them said it was as though a light switched on in heaven. To think. Jesus looked at that group of people on the hill and said, you can bring that kind of hope. Because the brightest light ever to shine is Christ. One chapter earlier, Matthew 4, he said of Jesus' arrival, quoting Isaiah, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. On them a light has dawned. Every gym, every workplace, every school, every restaurant, wherever we go, and we're there, a light has dawned. People see that in, in us? And if you're here and you're in a dark place, Jesus is that light. Don't you bow your heads. Thanks, Lord, for our time, for your word, and um, the incredible impact you've had on our lives and the incredible thought that we can have that impact on other people's lives. In Jesus' name.